Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And amazingly enough, we're in the same physical location. Yes, we are <laughs> both in Houston. <laughs> Not even at a con. So Karen is on her way to the Shared's World, Shared World's co- Teen Writing Camp. Teen Writing Camp run by uh, the Vandermeers. That's <laughs> So today I had a marvelous time because... Karen did a take your friend to work day, and Karen works at NASA, so I had a brilliant time. <laughs> and I touched a moon rock. It, yeah, I have to admit, the, the moon rock is just one of the coolest things that, mm-hmm. that we have at the Space Center. 3.8 billion years old. Yep, yep. Yes. And it, it did, it's interesting. You can become a little cynical, even as a, as a science fiction writer, about the, the future of space exploration and so forth. But yeah, it got me a little teary, got got me a little moved. So I am I'm going to pour that inspiration into some more work and, and, and see what happens with that. But I have a feeling of course the reality is always gonna be more splendid than what we can come up with. I hope so. So but today we are here to talk about two more entries in our Math Fies section of series of season two. Mm-hmm. And first up it we realized, actually, after reading it and thinking about it a whole bunch more, that um, Single Bit Error by Ken Wu is a brilliant story and got a lot to think about, but actually it might not actually be <laughs> math-fi the way I kind of thought it was. Yeah, it's sort, of, it's sort of on the edge. But in a way, it very much does tie into some of the math-fi concepts of worldview and perception and pattern finding that we've already noticed in um, the Yunhali Shadow Postulates and in Flatland. And what really was the draw as well is that it's a, it's a, it's a conscious homage to Ted Chan's short story, Hell is the Absence of God, which, of course, we discussed in our first season. Right. Actually, our first season, possibly our first episode, I think, mm-hmm. we, we touched on uh, Stories of Your Life and Others, the brilliant short story collection by Ted Chang, which if you have not read, you need to. Yes, yes. So I'm, I'm actually going to talk about just a little bit, because... It'll give us a chance to hark back to the Ted Chang, which for us is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And it will also underline again some of the um, some of the underlying common themes that we've already been observing in some of the previous works. Single bit error. Short story. Um, if you, if you don't recall, Hell is the Absence of God concerns a man who is happily married to a woman who has faith, and he himself does not believe in God. No, it's not that he doesn't believe, it's that he doesn't love. Well, it's impossible not to believe. the love of God, sorry. Right, yeah. But it's, it's impo- actually a world where angels can be seen, God is known to be real, and, and it's, it's, it's a world that's painted in a particular way so that the philosophical question of faith becomes, in a way, very black and white. So um, that whole question was about his wife dying and him trying to find that love of God in a way that will allow him to go back to his wife, to be his wife again. So and failing miserably. <laughs> yes. So so Kendall has a, a story single bit error, which is a bit of a take on that. Although it's obviously said in our universe. It's said in our universe. Not not the kind of you know um, sort of secondary world where these things are concrete. No, this is our world. He does tell the story in a very realist fashion. Um, it's very much a contemporary world. It's very much a world where you could say the usual rules should seem to apply. So what happens is you have your protagonist, who's Tyler, and Tyler does um, tells a story with a little bit of reminiscing, but the basics of the story is that he meets this girl, he falls in love with this girl, 
they get into a car accident and the girl dies. Now what's particularly special about this girl, apart from the fact that she is in fact what I would call the embodiment of the manic pixie dream girl, <laughs> is that she, um, when she was younger she went for an abortion and in that moment of, I don't know what you might want to call it, that moment of, 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 of intense experience, she believed that she encountered an angel. And she called that angel Ambriel. And she would speak very movingly to Tyler about this experience of this angel. And in a way, that was part of what he loved about her, although he himself was pr pretty much solemnly atheist. And even in the face of what she was talking about, could not really change that position. And to backtrack a bit, bit for his flashback, he had a situation where his um, grandmother had died. And he thought he had a memory that involved them talking, um, you know, she was saying something to him um, in the kitchen. But then he examined the memory and he realized that some of the details were wrong. He, he thought that there was... A, um, he, he had the memory occurring in the dining room in, yeah. a, in a house that his parents later reminded him mm -hmm. they never ate, ate in the dining room, they, right. that there wasn't a table there. And, mm -hmm. and again, just some of the details could not have been true. Couldn't have happened. So he began to realize that this seemed to be a kind of a fabricated memory that was part of him trying to come to terms with his grandmother's death. And he started to come up again with a, a sort of a, a theory as to why that would happen. And the theory is in a way what lends, lends the, um, the story its title. This idea that if the brain in, in forming memories is basically, you know, neurons firing, um, at a cellular level, if you have um, external particles coming in from the cosmos that knocks something off kilter, then you can have, in a way, your memory being formed in a way that's, that's not accurate. So he, he began to start to formulate this theory of external influences that could cause you to perceive the world in a way that did not actually happen. So going back to the girl that he then met, Lydia. Lydia, who um, changed his life so amazingly. Um, they just got to the point where, you know, she agreed to marry him. And they're driving back home. And again, something very strange happens. He puts the car on sort of auto-nav or autopilot or what have you. Cruise control, we call it in Thank space. you. Cruise control. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was a slip there. I was thinking of some, some far future stuff. And there's, there's a glitch there's a glitch and the car goes out of control and she dies and he's badly injured. He's got both bones broken and some, some burns and so forth. And uh, loses an eye. Or uh, yes, and loses, and loses sight in the eye. Yeah. Which, which, which to me indicates some level of, of head trauma. And he's relating how he, he kind of is watching her as she's clearly about to die. And she says, Ambriel, which of course is the angel she's been talking about. And, you know, he's so convinced, he looks around for a minute to, to see if the angel is there and actually misses the moment of her death. And even as he tries to recall that moment, he's like, but you know, he can't remember that his, his legs were broken and he well, can't he, remember he said, the burns. Yeah, he says he doesn't remember feeling any pain. Exactly. So it's, it's a memory, yes, but already we have indications that it's a memory that he doesn't have full faith in because facts that were verifiable afterwards were not being experienced in that moment. So then, um, 
he becomes a bit obsessed about why the car went out of control. And then we return again to his theory of these outside influences, these outside particles coming in from the cosmos and knocking things off kilter. Right, cosmic rays, essentially, in the case of the accident investigation. Yes. So this time he figures, okay, in the actual um, semiconductors of the navigational system, something went and flipped um, a switch from on to off, as it were. No, it redirected a variable name to point to something that would have been impossible for it to normally point to. Okay, there you go. So basically, uh, for for comp side people, uh, changing an address register. Mm. Okay, okay, I was thinking binary, but, but definitely... Well, it's still based in binary. Basically, mm-hmm. it's a one-bit flip that mm-hmm. caused it where it had been pointing in this register to now point in the other I one. I used the wrong term. I said switch, but I really did mean to say that it flipped from one state to another. Oh, yes. Okay. That's what I meant to say. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, her, her science is a lot fresher than mine at the moment. So, um, so believe her when she says <laughs> that this term is the right term. So, yeah, so he's, he's already expanding this theory to now... Um, make it in a way completely not his fault the accident happened. So in a way it's still a pattern that he's using to deal with his guilt, if you see what I'm saying. Oh, okay. Guilt, yeah, one. yeah. And he also decides that if he's going to see her again, that somehow he has to himself encounter Ambriel. And he has friends who point out to him that this, this fallacious argument. They're like, you know, you seem to think you can trick yourself into believing in God. And, and he further extended, extended his, his, his um, theory that if he could somehow alter his, his brain functioning into, into a belief state, that then he could somehow see Ambriel and then encounter Lydia again eventually. And he does all kinds of things. Drugs. And, and yeah, drugs. And meditation. And tries to go for electroshock therapy and they're basically like, are you mad? <laughs> and um, walks off into the desert and almost dies, but his friends come and rescue him. And, you know... And one of my favorite things is that at that point, he kind of snaps out of it. Mm-hmm. And then he, and then you flash forward, and he's actually gotten over it, moved on with his life, gotten married, and had kids. And although, and although the daughter that he has had is, in fact, named Lydia, you do, in fact, get the sense that he has properly moved on and he's dealt with it in some way. And his little daughter now, Lydia, is, is with him. They're outside in the, in the yard and looking at the stars and talking about that. And then, with pure randomness, he sees Ambriel. He encounters Ambriel. And in the moment of actually assessing what's happening to him, he detects something isn't quite right. And almost like falls out of the belief in a way. Um, how, how to explain it? He... Hmm... He falls out of it almost exactly at the same time he's having it. Yes. Uh, uh, One detail was wrong. He remembered looking at Sirius as a star just before Ambriel appeared. For a fraction of a second, Sirius appeared to glow a little brighter, barely perceptibly. It was a very slight twinkle. It could have been anything, an atmospheric distortion, a wisp of cloud passing, a trick of the eye. But instead he decides that essentially it's a flare from Sirius that's causing the cosmic ray that is currently interfering with his brain to exactly. give him the angelic vision. And then he said as soon as he realized that Embryo was gone, the type system held. Yes. So once again, he has now completely convinced himself of this pattern. Um, this, this particular um, 
system of meaning making that he has created to say that whenever something is perceived in a way that does not match with reality, it is the result of some kind of external electrons interfering with the brain's functioning. And in that moment, as I say, Ambriel is gone. He has a moment in his memory, but what was it? He says he knew that he was doomed. For the rest of his life, he remembered that feeling of rapture, that love for God, the sweetness of being. He had believed if only for a moment he'd been with Lydia, but then he had looked, and then there was the absence of God. Now, that's a story, but there was a bit near the beginning where he's flashing back a bit to his childhood, some of the people that he met in school and so forth. For example, one of them is, is the friend that later comes to save him when he tries to starve himself in the desert in the hope of getting some kind of... of Epiphany. Although, wait, there, there is one thing that I want to note before, I, I think I know where you're going with that. Mm -hmm. The actual last line of the story harkens back to the way his parents ended fairy tales. Oh, yes. Um, and the thing is, so, in Ted Chang's story, when a character has this revelation of the love of God, and then is condemned to live the rest of his life, actually the rest of, it, rest of his after, eternal afterlife, yes. in absence from God, it's portrayed it's as being agonizingly tragic. Yes. At the end of this story, it says he lived, sometimes even happily, until the day he died. Right. So that's in direct um, counterpoint to Hell is the Absence of God, um, which, is, which is interesting in its own way. But what I found fascinating is that, you know, he's, he's talking a bit about his childhood. He's running through various people that he encountered in school. And um, here's, here's one very brief memory. Tyler looked at her until the music stopped. He was just about to ask her to dance when her date showed up. So, it's possible to fall in love in half an hour, he thought. He wrote Amber Rhea on a slip of paper and sealed it in a beer bottle with aluminium foil and threw the bottle as far into Long Island Sound as he could. So I thought to myself, okay, his first crush, or first sort of massive crush, was Amber Rhea. And then this angel that Lydia talks about is Ambriel. The whole story is riddled with unreliable narrator tricks. Am I really supposed to believe now that, that Ambriel ever existed or was Ambriel always just a concept for this sudden overwhelming love that he created in his head from the moment of Lydia's accident? And I say that because he only knew Lydia for about three months and then the accident happened and then he becomes very obsessive about finding out why she died and also obsessive about trying to get back to her in some way. So there's this, this sense that you have that you can't really trust any of his memories. And it's really just about him. Um, you can't trust his memories. He can't trust his memories. And you're trying to find meaning in some way. And the meaning that he finds is, oh, it's all about these external particles that come in and like zap you and rearrange your memories. And that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, and the, and the interesting thing is, um, you know, I read the story and I especially appreciated it as the counterpoint to, to Ted's um, healthy absence of God. I especially liked the fact that it showed somebody moving on. Yes. Because in, in real life, tragedies happen and then people get the hell over it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. Mm. Um, but if I look, if I... If I take even a moment to think about the idea of a cosmic ray causing um, a, a faulty memory, memories are far more, complex far more complex than that. And our memory has been pretty well established to be fairly holographic. Mm -hmm. uh, there are lots of redundancies, and then there are lots of places where errors creep in just through our own organic, yep. you know, it, it, 
it's a complex system. Um, I certainly don't buy the idea that, that any single interference would cause the kind of, you know, conflated memory that kids always have um, of, of you've taken, heard one story from one parent and you remember a little exactly. vignette from your childhood and next thing you know, I know I, I remember something from when I was two that I couldn't possibly remember and I, it's, I formed the memory because people your told me about it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Told me a story. And um, similarly, um, you have an accident victim with head trauma and with emotional trauma. And again, there's so many reasons just wrapped up in that for him to have some very faulty memories. Not to mention when he becomes Mr. Accident Investigator and decides and, and somehow is able to to nail down that it is one cosmic ray <laughs> that caused a, a register in a crashed car. I'm like, I'm not even sure the NTSB could get to that level of uh -huh. certainty about a failure cause. Yeah, um, yeah. So that, that felt suspect as well. Mm -hmm. So I think the story is emotionally powerful. Yes. And, and as a portrait of this guy mm -hmm. and how he deals with his life and, and the weird things in it, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a brilliant story. But, and, it's, and it's also powerful because in looking so much at, at somebody who's desperate to, to, to find, find meaning in his life to the point where he's actively willing to fool himself into believing something that he starts off by saying, well, I know this doesn't exist, i.e. I'm real. Um, that kind of level of, of um, that, that kind of does hark back to what we were looking at in Flatland and in, in the Unhali stories where you have people who come with their own both personal and cultural viewpoints and they kind of wrap their science around those frameworks. And here he is, he actually does have a framework as well. It's, it is a very scientific framework. And in order for him to, to find meaning in what's happened, whether the meaning is for why did this accident happen or um, you know, why did this memory go faulty, he wraps a, a scientific sort of fabric around it and says, right, this is my truth. But in a way, it's, it's, it's still religious thinking all over again. You know, yeah. So it's it's actually kind of ironic because you know previously we were looking at you know people's cultural and personal biases shaping their science, and here he has his science and he's using it to shape his personal and cultural um, being. So it's very much two way street, and like I said, it's not strictly math fine, but it does look at that underlying sort of meta issue of um, how do we find structures and how do we use those structures. To, to predict or understand life. Yep, that works for me. Good. And now we're going to have a look at Distances by Van Singh. Which is brilliant! Brilliantly amazing! And, and holds up so well on rereading. Oh my goodness! Sort of book you read where you're like, where have you been all my life? I, I, I enjoy this so much. I'm so happy that Karen recommended this book to me. And... I really do have to say this is one of those situations because it's a novella. It's a short it's a short read, relatively speaking. It's a rich story. There's a lot packed into it, but it's very readable. The character is very engaging. And if you have never done this before and sometimes you just listen to the podcast regardless of whether or not you've read the material, no. I would say stop now, get it, you know, whether it's ebook or whatever. Right, and it is available as an ebook from Aqueduct Press or as an uh, attractive, slender trade paperback. Yes, 
go and read it. You will not regret it. Go and read it. And then come back and turn back on the podcast again and follow us. <laughs> so distances. We have a, a far future planet which has clearly been colonized by people from Earth. But by now, the, the humans, we can pretty much call them transhuman, posthuman, because they've, they've had some adaptations, some biological adaptations. And the protagonist in particular comes from a remote region where she, there is, they, they live by the sea, and there's something in the sea that has interacted with their blood and, and vice versa. So they not only have a kind of a connection to the sea, but they've also acquired these um, this tint to their skin, which which involves well, there's also there's neck slits going on. There's this yeah, they, they the become amphibious in yes. a way. But um, but this is what is fascinating is that they have a a tradition that at some at some age they come into a, a gift, and the gift may be understandable or it may be completely incomprehensible. But it's usually a very unique way of seeing the world. And the protagonist, who is Anasuya, has a mathematical sense of the world, a very intuitive mathematical sense of the world. And to give an example of how this happens, she then ends up going to the city where the people are, well, I guess perhaps more like ordinary humans. And she goes to the beautifully named Temple of Mathematical Arts, which is like, let's just smash together maths and art and, and religion all at once. And, and just, that's very evocative. So they, they have this period where they're kind of learning about each other because she has to learn their particular way of expressing mathematical um, theories and proofs and paradigms. And they have to learn how it is that she's able to um, almost intuitively sense certain aspects of mathematics. But because, as I said, she's got this interesting thing happening with her blood, they build for her And her skin, also. And her skin, yes. They build for her a machine where she immerses herself in a fluid that kind of interacts with her body chemistry or blood and allows her to visualize mathematical topographies. So she, she gets this sort of immersive, sensual experience of the mathematics, which when she then gets out of it, she uses that to fill in the gaps for, for um, to solve and advance mathematical theorems. So, and, and, and mind you, at the same time she's doing that work, she's also getting inspiration to do mathematical art. Well, one thing that that struck me about the the opening um, the opening scene in the in the novel, mm-hmm. she uh, she is coming out of the amnion, which yes. is the fluid bath that they prepared for her. That, that gives her these chemical signatures. But you know, amnion is a word. It is. Yes. <laughs> and what I was going to say next is that she comes down a tunnel and is sort of starting to reconnect with the world. And she literally comes down this tunnel mm-hmm. and into the light. And I was like, wow, this, this is, is a birth experience. whole ton of birth imagery. Yes, yes. So, yeah, and it's, it's very, it's a very, oh, goodness. Should I say feminist or should I say feminine? I was I would have to go with feminine. I mean, it it's is a very feminist. feminine view of experiencing mathematics. And 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 throughout this book, the imagery mm-hmm. draws on on feminism or feminist feminine um, <laughs> paradigms. Yes, and yes. not not patriarchal ones. And it's I love it so much. It's beautiful. And and as I said, there's that seamless interaction between the idea of mathematics as as sort of proofs and, and hard facts and theorems, but also mathematics and art. When I started reading this book, 
I ended up for the first time in my life like highlighting bits because yeah, there's a there's a point where um, some people come from a distant planet and they are seeking the expertise of the Temple of Mathematical Arts because they have um, this fluid which is representative of a new mathematical kind of mathematical space and they need to have it uh, analyzed. They've tried to build their own vats or what have you to do it, but they simply haven't got the expertise. So they've taken the time to, to travel for, I think it's 18 years through space to come to her planet um, to to just ask them to, you know, here is this fluid, please have a look at it, analyze it, and, and tell us what you make of it. So she's, she's, she's for the first time encountering this team from this other planet, and she's describing them, and she uses terms like um, tall hurok, long face, almost on the lips, almost bilateral symmetry, long hands fumbling shyly with a neck clasp, voice deep and rich, quick, shy blinks, Glance, a sine wave, smooth, curious, and shy all at once. I got a shiver reading that. Because when she said, glance, a sine wave, smooth, curious, and shy all at once, I said, I know exactly what she means. That is a sine wave. It comes and it goes. It's like intense there and it dies away. And I thought, whoa. So I kind of just reveled in that for a bit. And then she continues and she's describing mathematician Nurks, who is the leader of that team. And um, Nurks was small and compact, her hair in a braided bun of pleasing symmetry, her face old and wrinkled in complicated and interesting ways, like river mouths bifurcating, entering a sea. Her gaze was sharp, but with a kindness and a reserve. To Anasuya, she was like a 2D projection of a multi-dimensional object a lot was compressed into what she spoke, the way she looked at Anasuya. And of course, this is foreshadowing because Nurse hasn't told me the full story of what this fluid and the mathematical space that it represents is all about. But yes, you do get from Anasuya a sense that she sees the entire world in mathematical terms. But this is not a kind of a, a dry mathematical imagining at all. It's a very evocative way of doing it. And I have to admit, I actually look at things differently because of having read this novella. Um, I remember shortly after reading it, I was on a, I, I was by a lakeside, and I was watching the different patterns of waves coming across, um, you know, coming across where I was looking on the lake, and I could actually, for the first time, paid enough attention to separate the different waveforms that were being presented. And, and it felt for a moment like living inside a Fourier transform. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it's just brilliant. And, and I love being able to now kind of turn, turn on that, that way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. and, yes. and I never, it's not something I'd ever um, applied to the world like that until I read this story. Yes, yes. Um, now, another important character is the master. Right. And he's important on two levels. First of all, she also describes him in very highly mathematical terms, but also very intuitively um, mathematical terms. And basically he is um, a human who is even stranger than she is because he's supposed to be a genetic splice of two other species with humanity. So he's got these terrifying teeth. And then he's also got body modifications, like there's a, a plate in his skull or in his cheek and so forth. But she describes him as literally spiky, unpredictable, 
um, almost hostile in some ways or inimical to her because she's uncomfortable in his presence. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't appear to be aggressive to her, but at the same time, he comes into her presence and she wants to like run away, run away because it's so uncomfortable just being in his presence. And we, we call that a bad vibe, personally. So, so that's, that's really important. And then another group I thought was extremely important was um, her family. She had a, a group of people that she lived with. Oh, again, before we get the, to that, so she, she grew up in this uh, uh, Oceanside, mm-hmm. you know, a very water-based community. The Temple of Mathematical Arts is in a desert city. Yes. And, and uh-huh. she is literally a fish out of water. Yes. Do you notice that? And, and there's that very strong, almost beautiful sense of her talking about her feeling of difference. And talking about her feeling of, you know, there's a bit where she says she's afraid that she'll go out into the air and her blood will dry and, and the air will rush out of her lungs. And as you say, that, that description of being a fish out of water. So it's completely, it's perfect that way. So, it's, so yeah. Yeah, it's, it, she's doing all this in the most, how do you say, alienating possible landscape for yes, her. Yes, exactly. But, um, but in this new city, she's formed uh, a relationship group. She's formed a relationship group. They, they have various, um, they tend to have polyamorous groupings. And one of them is called a pentad, which is five people. And she's managed to form some connections. Um, the connection is not perfect. But the, it's what I would call uh, a naturally close, but not na- unnaturally idyllic plural relationship. Yeah. So you can see that they really care for each other. But you can also see that they're human and there are issues between them. Or that some people are going to feel the need to move on at some point and so on. So it's it's a very it's a very beautiful there's even a point where um, where she's making her art and they come to see what she does and they look at her with new eyes I, and I thought to myself, yeah, you know, people are really close to you so they don't know that much about your work. Well and and one thing um so she's very obsessive about about her work, and and she's presented very much like the um, the trope of the mathematical genius, mathematical yes. or scientific genius, um, obsessive and and to the point of neglecting her human relationships. Yes, and um, and so you actually kind of feel bad for the pentad because she's like, <laughs> yeah. I should go home, but oh, this stuff's so cool, and they yeah. wouldn't understand it anyway. So yeah. I'm just going to stay in the temple for <laughs> another like four weeks. Mm, exactly, <laughs> and and part of that is because. The experience we described, you know, her being in the Amnion, experiencing this different mathematical topography with her actual senses, she can stay in there up to three days and more. So it's a completely immersive experience to the point where, you know, she talks about being back on the ground as crawling like onto the surface like a bug. So there's definitely this feeling of her being not just an alien in the city, but also that mathematical sense kicks up the strangeness a notch and, and puts a little more distance in. And yet, still, there's genuine love, genuine attachment between her among among the group that she has um, formed this bond with. So, um, so that gives you, in a way, the context. And then the plot unfolds with her being immersed in this new fluid that's been brought from this other planet, trying to uncover its mysteries. And... It becomes it, actually the structure is beautiful. It becomes almost a bit like a like a, like a mystery, like a mystery trope, because at the very beginning of the story, she noticed that amid the green of her skin, there were some brown freckles appearing. And at first, she's just sort of like, "Oh, did this happen to my my mother? I'm not sure." And then she kind of shrugs it off for a bit, and then she's going through the experience of 
um, being immersed in this fluid, seeing the mathematical topographies. Interestingly enough, seeing a human face as she communicates imperfectly with that human face and is trying to figure out what that face means, whether that's something in her own psyche that she's trying to work out. So while she's trying to work that out, and it's a real, it's a puzzle, she comes out of the, the amnion, she goes to her mathematical proofs, she works on things, she fills in the gaps, she, she wonders about the face, and then she begins to realize that patches of brown on her skin are, are, are growing. And at the same time, when she's in the amnion, she's starting to get blind spots in what she's observing. So at the same time that she's losing that, that special something that her region's people have in their skin, she's beginning to lose her sense of being able to see the mathematics of the amnion. And it becomes for her a bit of a race against time to solve the puzzle of this fluid and to solve the puzzle of this, this woman's face before she loses her sight for good. So, um, so it's, it's absolutely amazing. And various things happen. At one stage, they do realize, because the master is the one who first realizes, no wait, this is too complex. There's more to it than what they're saying. You find out, you come back and you tell me. And you know, again, she's kind of creeped out by his presence, but she, she recognizes that what he's saying is entirely valid, but there's a lot more going on there. She discovers that what they're dealing with is a representation of hyperspace, which will have consequences for faster than light travel between um, the various planets that have been settled by various humans. Right, the people who'd come from the other planet actually took 18 years to get there because it is sublight, you know, fast but sublight travel. So if the, you know, if this is something that would enable an FTL breakthrough, then that would revolutionize the completely, galaxy. Completely, completely. So you have a situation where, you know, she realizes that, okay, this is, this is hyperspace that we're looking at. They're looking at the um, structure of hyperspace. And funnily enough, at the same time, the, the planet where she lives has a sort of a pantheon of gods and the gods themselves seem to have something to do with, if not with mathematics, at least with the perception of mathematics. And they, there's this bit where you can see she's almost incorporating theology. And not just the theology that is known, but some of the theology that is more hidden or lost into what she's observing. And the question of the face that she sees in the, in the new topography, the question is then whether that face she's seeing is of of that goddess who is less recognized, and whether that goddess is meant to represent a kind of a, a underlying meta-reality that underpins the, the foundation of space-time. So, so we have that going on, but she also becomes in some ways um, both, well she begins, she begins to become very inspired by her art. But she well, turns. The, the face in the Amnion is telling her make art. Exactly, it's telling her make art. But she goes to her art in some ways to try to get more insight into the um, the work that she's doing with the mathematics. But also in a way to escape. And the master has maybe had some kind of strange insight of his own, and he starts to beg her to stop paying attention to the mathematical proofs and to pour all of her attention to the mathematical art, which he sees as, as being genius level. And indeed, it, you know, it, it forms a, a, an exhibition that people come and see it, as I mentioned before. And it's a big deal. But he's almost like, no, 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 
this, this, whatever this is, is too dangerous, it's too big for us. You just focus on her art, your art is brilliant, you know, why have you been wasting your time? She's been doing this all along. But for her, the two are connected. She can't be doing one and not the other. They do feed into each other. So she does, in fact, manage to complete the, the, the answer, you know, to, to what the hyperspace is about in a way that it can be utilized and, um, and mapped and, and, and have some kind of application in terms of transport. But it's not necessarily that satisfying to her because she was pushing. She she loves being in the Amnion. It's mm -hmm. her her home environment, and also she loves the pure mathematics. Yes, there's a way of understanding this new topology that has the practical consequences for the engineering. Mm -hmm. But then she points out there that and that basically has to do with like a four dimensional projection. But she's like, but it's a seven dimensional space. I want to explore all the richness yes. of the seven dimensions. And people are like, that's nice, but we really need FTL travel. Now. <laughs> yes. And before she goes mathematically blind, mm -hmm. um, she's able to do what they need. Yeah. But she's, I don't feel like she's able to, to gain all the satisfaction from it that she would have wanted mm -hmm. if she could have attacked the problem her own way. Yes. Yes, exactly. So um, a couple of interesting things happened. There is uh, another character who is a sort of servant who doesn't understand mathematics very well, but who admires her nonetheless. And she's very kind to him in a fairly non-patronizing way. Mm, mostly. <laughs> Bor borderline, but you know. And he tends to like, you know, bring her tea and tell her where her cloak when it's cold and that sort of thing. And um, just around this time, you know, he's supposed to bring her tea. Well, just around the time she's finishing everything. She's finished her major work of art. Yes. And, and he collapses... And you know he mutters some words, and then she realizes that the master had said something to him that made him suspicious. So he tasted the tea that was supposed to go to her, and the master had poisoned it. And the master was himself found um, having committed suicide. So um, the, the master said something along the lines of, "There must be boundaries," because all the time when she began to realize that it was hyperspace and it could lead to fast and light translation. Sorry, transportation. She kept thinking about that team that had come to them over 18 years and who it would take at least as long to get back and the different relationships they would have had that were severed by time. And she kept on thinking of it in terms of, look, if I do this, it will mean greater connection between humans. It will mean families don't have to you know, say goodbye to each other for such long periods of time. This will be a good thing. The master's view now is there must be boundaries. And what you're doing is you're, you're erasing the boundaries. This is a terrible thing. And he sort of commits suicide basically because he doesn't want to live in a world like that. So they're having... Um, I have to admit, on, I really kind of felt like in both my readings of, of, of the novella, I didn't feel like that was foreshadowed terribly well. That kind of felt like a bolt out of the blue. Do you know, in a way, it didn't seem all the blue for me because... It was established that he was a fairly weird person. <laughs> yeah, but there's creepy, and then there, you know, and, and, and then there's, and now I'm going to murder people and, and commit suicide. Well, true, but there's a bit in the, in the earlier part of the novella where Anasuya describes the master's form of mathematical art. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because it's minimalist, and what it appears to consist of is a, a deconstruction of yeah, the mathematical... Self-destroying self uh, exactly. functions. So there's, and she doesn't like his art, you know, um, she finds it very depressing. And you can see the way his mind works from how his art um, plays out. Okay. And because of that, 
when I saw that he oh, was... Oh, annihilating. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, I, yeah, that, that actually went over my head a bit, but no, now that you pointed it out, I, I see it. Okay. Okay, cool, cool. So, um, you know, it doesn't stop there with the master's suicide. Basically, he, he cannily poisons the vintage, um, you know, um, liquors that he has in his, in his cellar, so that when they bring it up to celebrate, <laughs> they then discover that they accidentally kill um, one member of the, of the home team and one member of the, um, the visiting team. I'm sorry, I'm making it sound like a game of football now. But you know what I'm trying to say. And before they realize something's terribly wrong and kind of dash the cups from people's hands and stop everybody from drinking. So, um, you know, and at this point, Anasuya suffers a kind of a breakdown because up to then she's been covering the brown spots on her skin with green makeup, which ironically she can do because her art's become so famous that, her, that the green tint of her skin has become very popular and it's become like a makeup option. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, she's been, she's been using that to cover herself up and then the day comes when um, it's her, she's completely brown, there's no more green, she's utterly lost her mathematical sense and she just takes off. She takes off, she leaves her pentad, she goes, she goes wandering for a while. Disappears into kind of a, a, a big city all-religions festival. Exactly. And... Um, and it's, it's a sort of a, in a way she goes through a, a process, I could say, of grieving and eventually comes back to herself and, um, and begins to realize something which I thought was, was quite fascinating. As I said, up to that point, everything for her was about faster and light transportation would be more connection between people. And then suddenly she thinks about where she came from. She thinks about the people at the coast, who of course she no longer resembles. And she suddenly realizes that if it's going to be easier for people to come to, to our world uh, and vice versa, they're not going to be as isolated and sheltered and protected. I have to go and warn them. So it's, it's almost a, a bittersweet irony where um, the very thing that the master said, there must be boundaries, you know, and, and, and her insistence of, no, there must be connection. She realizes that connection can itself have its problems. And that's why you need to be prepared for it. And, and there's always, in, in a way, throughout the book, that kind of tension between wanting deeper connection but also wanting that kind of um, isolation or privacy or, or being a particular way that's very different from everybody else. So, you know, she, she does, in fact, end off by going back home to warn her, her people that the world is going to change. And, sorry, that the universe is going to change because of this thing that she has discovered. So in terms of, of how scientists discover new things and in terms of how those things change their lives, I thought this is incredibly accurate and it's written in a way where I fully believe that this was the far future. This is the far future in the way that the humans don't really look like us. They don't really believe the things we do. They don't really believe the same way that we do. Um, there was none of this kind of lingering leftovers of contemporary ideologies it was very very real and and i guess a short a short book really but packed 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 well and we and, haven't and even complex we haven't even really gotten into the flashbacks of her growing up and the illustrations of the oh cigar culture we versus the city culture mm -hmm. i mean um there, there's so much there basically she she in flashbacks mm -hmm. to and Suya's youth, she paints this picture of the cigar culture mm -hmm. 
um, as being very different than the desert city yes. culture. And you get a, a good, rich feel of both of them. You get some fables and myths from mm-hmm. both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but one thing, so meth, in, in the amphibian culture that, that Anasu is from, um, even for those, I get the, the impression that even for those who don't have the mathematical gift, mm-hmm. uh, math is still kind of important. Yes. Um, it's described as poetry it, and, um, and it's taught. And, uh, the, you know, the women have been teaching her. And after she gets her mathematical sense, uh, she, she starts in on, on these proofs. Yes. Or what she first describes as proofs. And, um, no, no, her first mathematical poem. <laughs> her first mathematical poem. Yes. <clears throat> and one of the things they, they uh, point out to her is that the way they end all of their mathematical poems is, my poem is incomplete. Yes. And, and I, love the, I love the idea of ending a proof that way instead of QED, mm-hmm. because every proof is just a small part of an overall greater picture. Yes. And, and this is a sort of um, humbling remembrance of that, mm-hmm. whereas QED feels like it's braggadocio, yeah, dust yeah. it is show. Yes. <laughs> I dare you to prove differently. <laughs> but but the, the, um, her first uh, uh, poem that's, that's done, quote-unquote, right is, mm-hmm. Fish! Fish, 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 bigger fish. My poem is incomplete. <laughs> yes. And it's such a cute scene with this little yeah. girl. And she's she's like, fine. She's fine. Yeah, fine. And what has happened is that she's been watching. They have, they have these fish that basically reproduce by um, sort of daughter parthenogenesis. So, um, you know, one fish will create two fish, which is why she goes fish, fish, fish. She's describing that process. That double process. And then process. the daughters then produce the, the, the double granddaughter. So that's why you get yeah, fish, fish, fish. No, fish, 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 fish. Four fish. Fish, 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 fish. Sorry. But then when she comes with that poem initially to um, one of her mothers, that mother then points out to her, but, you know, Anasuya, if that were true, we would be overrun with fish and we're not. And, you know, what the reality is that bigger fish, a big fish will come in and will eat the smaller fish. And that's why we always say that what we have there is only a part of the whole truth. And as, and as Karen said, that she comes back with the adjusted poem or the adjusted <laughs> mathematical proof to say, you know, yes, we have these fish. The bigger fish, the big fish came in and ate some. And my poem is incomplete <laughs> because this is only a small snapshot of an overall whole. So and yeah, it was the cutest thing It is thing fantastic. Ever. I, I, I had such so a weird much. reaction to that poem. I mean, I looked at it and I was just tickled. I was really, really tickled. It reminded me of, oh, okay, this is going to sound kind of silly, but I think you can understand this. I was in the car at home in the traffic jam and there was a truck in front of me and there were these um, four young men standing up um, and they were all dressed differently. A lot of them had backpacks and so on. I looked at them and I started to laugh and I said, well, what am I laughing at? And then I realized that by pure chance, they had a sort of weird permutations and combinations things going, where all of the four of them, three had backpacks, three had caps, three had um, like um, longish shirts, but none of them like were all the same. It was all completely, <laughs> and, I, and I was like, I'm like, am I experiencing my first mathematical joke? I think I am. You know? And I was like, I can't explain this to anybody. But I looked at it, and, it, and the understanding of what I was seeing kind of went straight to my brain in a particular way that I then had to stop and think, wait a minute, no, why am I laughing? And then I realized I was laughing at... at the combinatorics of it all. Exactly, which was because it was such an unusual um, 
site to have that kind of thing happen. And that was the feeling I got with the fish, fish, fish. And I'm like, I see where you're going with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, something else, I tell you. So. Um, and yeah, so I, I love the, you know, the, uh, the cultural portrayals as, mm. as well. And, and again, the very feminine, um, you know, uh, Anastasia is raised with her mother's mm. plural, yes. which is very cool. And, and, you know, and they're the ones that teach her math. There's no, mm. there's no gender issue with that. Um, although there was one thing that I found a little troubling in the story, which is, and this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. Um, it, her mathematical sense is literally described as a gift. Mm -hmm. And in my experience in American school systems, um, people get sorted fairly early as being gifted at mathematics or not. Right. right. And the people who are, who are not tracked as being gifted mm -hmm. in math, especially in math, um, just kind of spend the rest of their school careers going, oh, well, I suck at math. And I'm like, no, it's a skill that you learn. It's not a <laughs> gift that you have. Now, some people are intuitively better at it. Yes. Just like, but that doesn't mean that the people who, quote unquote, aren't gifted can't learn it too. Mm -hmm. I, I don't consider myself to be particularly gifted at math, but I'm a physicist and I work at NASA. I somehow <laughs> managed to get over it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have worked with math geniuses and I am not one. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, that's okay. I can still be a scientist, even yes. though I'm not tracked that way. So um, I, I've, I have a sensitivity to the idea of mathematics and mathematical sense mm -hmm. as being presented as a gift that some people have and some people don't. Mm -hmm. That's just something I'm a little oversensitive to. I, I can see your point there, definitely. I suppose the only thing that slightly mitigates it for me is that when they call it a gift, they explain that the gift is... Well, it's not unalloyed in a way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because they describe some other people who um, have things happen to them or, or particular gifts that they express that either don't seem to make much sense, can't be explained. There's one where, um, you know, a boy kind of is closing on himself and every so often when he finally looks out at the world, he'll speak in a language nobody can understand. And he goes back into himself and they're like, well, you know, that's his gift. <laughs> and, um, and then... There was uh, another boy, one in fact, who was one of Anasuya's earliest lovers. And he had visions of other cities beyond where they lived, which some people in fact used to scoff at. And it took a while for somebody else who had traveled to confirm to him that the visions that he was seeing were of places that actually existed. So you got the impression that um, you could have a gift, but whether that gift was always useful or appreciated or you know, kind of relevant to your culture or anything like that, that was completely up in the air. Yeah. So um, so it wasn't as simple as, as um, you know, here's your destiny if you have achieved it. Right. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't as simple as that. That's yeah, the only thing that mitigated it for me. Um, and then another thing that I thought was kind of interesting, um, Anusia's lover when she was back home was the guy with the visions, and he eventually went wandering yeah. off. She was the one who wanted to stay home, mm -hmm. um, or to stay in her, in her culture. She yes. she didn't feel the need to to go out. But after the death, after his disappearance, and then the death of one of her mothers, mm -hmm. the one who had taught her mathematics most closely, mm -hmm. um, she goes out to sea, and she gets caught kind of in a storm. Yes, and um, 
and she goes on the scene in a very random and radical way. It's a very spur of the moment decision. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and as a result of that, she uh, gets picked up by sailors, and then mm-hmm. uh, she winds up in this in this desert city where most of the plot happens. Yes, and I thought it was interesting that she kind of didn't take an active decision to go mm-hmm. to this place, and she sort of washed up there yeah. in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, but but in a way. In a way, this is very natural for this kind of story because it's not a linear story. It's not told in a linear way. No, no. Um, you have your flashbacks. You have your kind of main plot, which we described, which is the whole question of looking at um, this issue of hyperspace. But the flashbacks themselves so much illuminate the story as to make it ooh, a multi-dimensional story. <laughs> well, and it's also, and, yeah, I mean, it's got a, a much more cyclical structure exactly. to it, and it, it builds and resonates, mm-hmm. and it's, oh no, there's so much about it that's just it's, brilliant. It's the kind of thing you want to read and reread, mm-hmm. because you know you're missing things, you need to go back, make some connections, it's really, really worthwhile. And it, it rewards rereading, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the myths and the fables and the cultural, I mean, she just brings so much richness. Yes. Um, and and not even richness of one culture, but but two and and getting towards three because you also have the offworlders in a very effortless culture. way. And I should have said at the very beginning, two thousand and eight Carl Brandon Parallax Award winner. Oh, excellent! Yes, yes. that is what the cover says. There you go. And um, and really, I was I was saying to myself, I I'm sorry it took me so long to get to this book. <laughs> honestly, honestly. But you, you said that you've encountered more of her work, so tell me a bit more about her corpus. Um, okay, so I have not read as much of her stuff as I would have, I, as I would love to, but another story that, um, that I read of hers is called Tetra- The Tetrahedron, and I think it appeared, oh my goodness, I want to say in ISF or um, Internova, mm-hmm. um, and it's set in India, and there's a... Um, Basically, an odd artifact appears in the middle of the city, mm-hmm. um, and no one really understands what it is. And it's one of those, per- it's like a perturbation that changes people's lives. Mm-hmm. And the main character is a woman who's studying, uh, um, I, would, I haven't reread it recently, but basically, you know, it's how her life changes because of this object. And... And it's set in India. There are cultural expectations of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's cultural expectations of her different romantic options. Yes. And in the end, it's like tip trees the women men don't see. Okay. There are all these cultural expectations of what uh-huh. she should do. Uh-huh. And she says, screw it all, and takes a completely <laughs> different path. And it's like, mm-hmm. you rock. <laughs> uh-huh. Um so that's the other story of, of Vandana's that, that really stood out for me. Of course, she mm-hmm. also um, edited um, Breaking the Bow, a collection about uh, Ramayana mm-hmm. stories, mm-hmm. Um, Very nice. which I've not read myself, but is supposed to be excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was with um, Anil Menon, I think. Okay. But hang on, for anybody who um, kind of missed that reference, we're really talking about a series of, of stories that are based on the religious canon of Hinduism. Yes. Okay, so I, I'm looking here at ISFDB and I noticed she has won a BSFA award, or no, nominated for BSFA award 2004 uh, for a short story called Delhi, which I've not read. Uh, nominated for a Riesling award for a long form poem, mm-hmm. Portrait of the Artist. 
nominate. She was on the Tip Tree Awards long list mm-hmm. for distances. Carl Brandon um, Award, as you say, for distances. And then she was also recommended on in Locus. Oh, for the collection in 2010, The Woman Who Thought She Was a Planet and Other Stories. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if there's anything that you take away from this podcast, it is, you should go and read Bandana Singh. Yes. And, and again, I, I don't think you'll ever have cause to regret that decision if you bring more Bandana Singh fiction and possibly even poetry into your life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good. I think, I think that covers it. See, I know it's, everything about podcasting goes smoother when you're face to face. Everything. <laughs> the body language makes so much difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what we're planning to do is um, probably while Karen is still here in Houston, mm-hmm. we will also record a sort of season wrap up. Yes. Um, looking back on all the things we've we've talked about in this season, we might start plotting out things for the next season. We've got some ideas we mm-hmm. need to. Percolate and, and we're, discuss. we're also open to you know give us a comment. Give us a comment. Talk about what you like so far and what you'd like to see more of. Uh, we're happy to be responsive to that sort of thing. And but we um, make no promises because we're perverse that way. Absolutely, uh, we go our own way. <laughs> and yeah, I think that that does sum it up. Yeah, pretty much. So um, thank you as always for listening, and yes. we will catch you in a couple weeks with Until our next with our. Time. Season 2 wrap-up podcast. Yes.